In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. All right, welcome back to another Monday Live. I'm your host, Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries. We're going to go ahead and dive right in. What I want to talk about today is oath-keeping, making vows, covenants, uh, basically the, the difficulty for New Testament Christians as we read the plain words of Jesus in the Sermon uh, on the Mount in verses, this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And it appears as though Jesus explicitly tells us that we cannot make a vow at all, at all. No vows, no oaths being made for New Testament Christians today. It was something that was permissible under uh, the Old Covenant and the Old Testament with Israel, but something that New Testament Christians cannot do. Now, the problem is, uh, what about putting your hand on a Bible and swearing, uh, going under oath in a legal court? Uh, what about certain business dealings and contracts that are essentially making oaths? Uh, it is to make an oath, to give your word, is a contract, a loose form of a covenant, so to speak. Uh, what about Christians that serve in the military that uh, go under oath um, in certain military positions? Uh, so can a Christian not be on a jury? Uh, can they not testify in a legal court? Can they not be in the military? Uh, can they not... Uh, you know, conduct certain business uh, contracts and certain business agreements. Uh, what, what is a Christian to do if Jesus plainly says that we cannot make any oath or swear or vow at all? So let's go ahead and start by looking at the text, right? But that's the dilemma. I want to frame it up. Uh, can Christians make promises? Can we make oaths today, even as New Testament Christians, in light of what seem to be the very plain words of Jesus? Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37, the Bible says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, so that's kind of what we're dealing with. Now, I want to compare and contrast that with uh, the 1689. So I'm going to read a little bit. Uh, the first three paragraphs of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This would be chapter 23 of O's. Um, I, I believe it's uh, of... Uh, vows and oaths or oath keeping uh, is the name of the chapter. Uh, so this is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which says that you can, right? So these are New Testament reform. This is the reform tradition. The Westminster says uh, pretty much exactly the same thing. So within the reform tradition, New Testament Christians having the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, right in front of their face, they have still determined that you can make a vow, both on the Presbyterian side of the aisle or on the Reformed uh, Baptist side of the aisle. I'm going to be reading from the 1689. This is what they say, and then we're going to try to square it with the plain words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Paragraph 1, chapter 23, the 1689. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, 
wherein the person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what he swears, and to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. Paragraph 2. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, as in a matter of weight and moment, for confirmation of truth and ending all strife, an oath is warranted by the word of God, so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Lastly, paragraph 3 of the 1689, chapter 23. Whoever takes an oath warranted by the word of God ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he knows to be truth, for that by rash, false, and vain oaths the Lord is provoked, and for them this land mourns. Okay. To break that down, essentially what the authors of the 1689 are saying is that Oaths should be sparse, they should be sparing, few and far between. We don't rashly take an oath. If we do take an oath, one of the big things that they're saying in these three paragraphs is that the only thing lawful for a Christian to swear by would be the name of God alone, and to do so with fear and trembling, to do so in a holy, reverent manner. Now, take that back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. What is it that Jesus is explicitly condemning? Well, in the first instance... What he's condemning is swearing by other things other than the Lord himself. He starts off again, verse 33, and he says, and it seems to be, don't take an oath at all. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform, keep the oath uh, that you have sworn to the Lord. But I say, do not take an oath at all. That's what he says. Do not take an oath at all. But then he immediately, right? There's a comma there. He immediately in the very same breath says, either by heaven why? Because that's the same as swearing by God. Heaven is God's throne. So don't swear by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, because that too is connected to God. It is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And king there is capitalized, speaking not of David, but speaking ultimately of Jesus Christ himself, um, at, speaking of God. And do not take an oath by your head, for your head, even that, was made by God and controlled by God under the banner of his sovereignty. You cannot make one hair white or black, but rather let what you say, uh, let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So the first thing that Jesus is condemning in the first sense is this, the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious rulers of his day, what they were across the board, whether it was divorce or whether it's uh, oath-taking, um, at every single level, what they're doing is like the IRS, okay? Um, any tyrannical position of authority, what they try to do is they try to extrapolate, uh, take something that's simple, a few commandments that are actually given by God, and draw them out to be a million commandments. I've quoted him several times uh, in this vein, but G.K. Chesterton, he said, if man will not have 10 commandments, he will have 10,000 commandments, right? So you look at like the IRS, you know, tax code, and you know, it's, it's thousands of pages. It's ridiculous. No, it's, it's exasperating, overwhelming. Nobody could keep it. And that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees added 
to the law of God, the Ten Commandments and the Decalogue and the Mosaic law as a whole, Levitical law and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But then they took that and they extrapolated it out um, to where when it comes to divorce, they would start saying, well, you can send your, your wife away for pretty much any reason at all, as long as you give her a certificate of divorce. Essentially, she could just burn the toast and you would be justified in, in sending your wife away. Now, why are the Pharisees and Sadducees, these re- religious rulers doing this? The reason why they're doing this is because they're adulterers. Right? They want to commit adultery, but they don't want to be indicted as adulterers. So uh, what do you do if you're no longer you know, uh, enjoying the wife of your youth and you have an adulterous heart and you want to, uh, to commit adultery with another woman, but you want to keep your fidelity card? Well, what you do is you divorce your first wife first for no reason at all. And you say that, well, technically I gave her that certificate of divorce that Moses said. And so it's above board. It's, it's justified in the sight of God. And I'm not committing adultery. I am now, you know, legally married to my second wife, you know, and all this is justified by the law of God, even though you, you got meticulous and, and you, you complicated the law of God to mean something that it never really was supposed to mean. And so that's what Jesus ultimately is addressing here. He's saying, You've heard it was said of old, um, you know, that uh, do not swear falsely, but uh, keep the oath that you make. And Jesus, he, he says, but I tell you, do not make an oath at all. Jesus says that, that's true. But then immediately the way that he, when he gives the descriptor of what that looks like, he says, don't swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head. Elsewhere, uh, the, the scripture talks about how Jesus indicts the religious rulers of his day because they would say, uh, they would say, well, if anyone swears by the temple, he is not bound by his oath. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he is bound by his oath. Or if anybody swears by the altar in the temple, he's not bound by his oath. But if anybody swears by the sacrifice laid upon the altar, then he is about bound by his oath. So essentially what the religious rulers of Jesus' day were doing is this. They were acting like, you know, six-year-old children and making a promise with their, their fingers crossed behind their back. And then when somebody actually tries to hold them to their keeping their word, they say, well, uh, I didn't promise. I'm not bound by my word because yes, I did make a promise, but you didn't see, you didn't notice, but behind my back, I had my fingers crossed. That's what they were doing. This is what Jesus is, in, is indicting. He's indicting um, not any and every form of oath at all, but what he's indicting is guys who are getting so technical with the law of God, which ultimately is just saying, don't swear falsely, keep your word. If you swear, it is permissible to swear, but if you swear, you should swear by God alone, not by any man-made thing, not the earth, nor nor uh, heaven, nor the, the temple, nor the, the altar, or Jerusalem, because all these things ultimately track back to God. You should use his name and do not use his name in vain. Do it with fear and trembling and reverence and awe, So only swearing by invoking the name of God, that's the only proper thing to swear by, is by God himself. And when you do make an oath, it is lawful to make an oath, but you must keep your word. Do not swear falsely, but keep your word. And Jesus, again, is indicting swearing by all these other things. And here's the real issue. Um, guys who were swearing by other things because they didn't, they were trying to leave a back door open for themselves to get out of keeping their word. 
That's why they were swearing by other things besides swearing by Yahweh alone. The reason why they wanted to swear by Jerusalem or swear by heaven or by earth or by their head or by, you know, the altar or, or uh, swear by the temple is because they weren't men of their words. They were liars and hypocrites. And this is what Jesus says to the religious rulers of his day again and again and again. Um, notice that the biggest thing that Jesus indicts the religious rulers of his day for is not so much for being legalist. There's a truth to that. But it's not that he says, you guys uh, care too much for the law and, and you're legalistic. No, the biggest thing that he says is you're hypocrites, not legalists, but hypocrites. You preach, but do not actually do it yourself. You, you put place heavy burdens on men, but you will not lift these burdens yourself with even one finger. So, so you're saying, well, this is the law of God to tithe down to, you know, to a tenth of your mint and dill and spices, but you yourself have neglected the weightier matters of the law to mercy and, and love and justice. Um, or when it comes to swearing, you say, oh, well, you have to keep your vow, but then you don't keep your vow. And you, you get out of keeping your vow while still keeping your religious ruler card on a technicality to say, well, I swore by the altar, but not the sacrifice on the altar. I swore by the temple, but not the gold in the temple. Um, and so Jesus is saying, no, no, no more of this. No more of this. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Don't swear by Jerusalem. Don't swear by your head. Uh, it's not uh, the, the gold uh, that makes the temple holy, but the, the, the temple is what makes the gold holy. It's not the altar that is holy, but the sacrifice upon the altar that makes it holy. And all these things, whether it be the altar or the sacrifice or the temple or the gold in the temple or Jerusalem or heaven or earth or your own head, which you cannot alter one hair to make it black or white, all these things ultimately track back to God. If you swear at all by anything, it should be to swear by God in heaven alone, and you are bound by your oath. There are no cheat codes. There's no crossing your fingers behind your back. There's no technicality, no back door to, to, uh, to seemingly make an oath with it when you know that you're actually not going to keep it, to intentionally lie, be deceitful, and then say that somehow your lie doesn't count and you're not actually bound by your oath uh, because you had your fingers crossed behind your back. That's what Jesus is indicting. That's what he's getting against. And that's what both the Westminster and the 1689 explicitly say is uh, that there is such a thing for New Testament Christians to make lawful oaths to this day, but the only thing that is uh, permissible to swear by is by God himself. And of course, we cannot swear falsely. We must keep our oath. We are bound to our word. Um, all that being said, uh, I want to add a couple more things. Luther and Calvin on this issue, essentially it boils down to this. They held a similar position. It boils down to this. They said that, um, that in private, Christians shouldn't really make oaths at all. They, they shouldn't. Privately, as Christians deal with fellow believers and in, in, in their marriages and with their children and their homes and in their churches, uh, there should be no need for swearing, no need for uh, making oaths, but rather they should be able to do exactly what Jesus says, let their yes be yes and their no be no, because we should be able to uh, take a Christian at their word, uh, that we would be promise keepers, that we would be those who keep our word. However, they would say, so they bifurcated and said, it is lawful to take an oath, but to only swear by God, invoking the name of God and not some other lesser authority, but to swear invoking the name of God, uh, but it's only lawful to do so as a Christian, uh, not privately among other Christians, but publicly when unbelievers are involved. 
So, so they would say it's legal um, or it's lawful uh, in the sight of God and scripturally to, uh, to make an oath when unbelievers are involved in the public square. Um, in society at large, whether it be uh, legally in a court of law where there are unbelievers, you know, who are involved in that court or in the military or in certain business dealings that involve uh, trade and contracts with other unbelievers. Um, And so in these instances, and what Luther and Calvin essentially said was this, they said the reason why that's permissible um, is because unbelievers uh, do not have the understanding uh, of Christians that we do of ourselves that, that, uh, that God has bound us to integrity and honesty in, in all of our dealings. And so unbelievers or foreigners or strangers, um, they don't have um, that view of us because they don't know our God and they don't know us. Uh, they don't have a certain view that could uh, to, to recognize that Christians are, um, are people of integrity, are word-keeping, oath-keeping people. And so for them, uh, we may need to uh, to make a contract, make a promise, make an oath in order uh, for them to be able to take us at our word. But even if we do that, we can't swear by whatever they would want us to swear by. We would have to swear by the only true authority in all the universe, which is invoking the name of God himself. A couple more things I want to add to this. One of the reasons why we know that it's, um, it is permissible, um, and I would agree with Luther and Calvin, in this public context, especially with unbelievers, to undergo oaths, Um, Even as New Testament Christians, one of the reasons we know that this is permissible is because Paul does it, the apostle. Uh, Jesus actually does it himself, and God does it. Uh, So we know God in the Old Testament with Abraham, and on uh, multiple other instances, God uh, invokes uh, an oath by swearing upon himself, right? With uh, Genesis 14 and 15, uh, God, having no one greater to swear by, swore, uh, made an oath with Abraham and swore by himself, Um, So God underwent an oath. Jesus undergoes an oath. Let me uh, find that verse. I've got it written down here, but uh, I believe it is. Here it is. Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. Um, It says this, but Jesus remained silent. This is when he's uh, being tried in the Jewish court of that day, the Sanhedrin. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. So the high priest is, is binding Jesus, calling him into uh, making an oath by invoking the name of God. I adjure you, I, I call God as witness, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I, I'm sorry, I can't swear. I can't undergo an oath. Now, the same Jesus who earlier in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount said, do not swear at all uh, or make an oath at all, he he chooses voluntarily and enters into an oath. He makes an oath. The high priest adjures him by the living God. And Jesus now says, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So so the high priest calls Jesus to make an oath, adjuring the name of God, the living God. And Jesus undergoes that oath by answering him and says, you have said so. He says, are you the Christ? And I want you to say it to God, as with God as your witness, that you are that you are the Christ, the Messiah, um, and Jesus under oath. Now he's under oath in the Sanhedrin. This is not just religious rulers, but it is a legal court for Jerusalem for for the Jews in that day. And Jesus under oath in a public court um, now says, "Well, it's a kangaroo court, you know, but um, they're just it's a gotcha court, just trying to you know to bring up false charges." But Jesus still undergoes this oath and says, "Yes, 
I am the Christ. You have said so, meaning the very thing you just said, that is the truth. You've said I'm the Christ, and I am. So Jesus undergoes oaths. So God makes oaths. Jesus undergoes oaths. Uh, last one would be the Apostle Paul. He does it at least three times. I'll give uh, one example. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 9. He says, for God is my witness. So he's, I swear by God. I swear in the name of God, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. What he's doing is he's writing to the Romans, and, and, and this is back to the Calvin Luther kind of thing. Now, he's writing to the church at Rome, so this would be fellow believers, but these would be foreigners. Paul is a Jew. These are Gentiles. Uh, it's a place where, where he doesn't necessarily, there, there's a lot of strangers there who don't have deep, intimate, personal relationship with the Apostle Paul. It's a place that he intends to visit. He says that in his letter to the Romans, I hope to come and see you. Um, but this is a, a people that are strangers to him. They don't really know him. They don't have close relationship. So what Paul's doing is precisely what Luther and Calvin, what they uh, both agree that's permissible for Christians to do, is, is Paul is appealing. He's making an oath to people who don't know him so that they might uh, believe his testimony, that what he's about to say is in fact true. He's saying, I know you're not going to take my word for it. I can't just let my yes be yes and my no be no in this instance with you because you don't know me. I don't have those kind of credentials with you. Um, I don't have that kind of track record with you to where my yes, where you would trust me that my yes is always yes and my no is always no. And so I'm, un, I'm willing to undergo an oath. I call God as my witness for God is my witness. And what is it that he's going to, to now testify? That I care for you. That God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you. I mention you in what instance? In his prayers. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to win over the Roman church to the fact that he's not just uh, trying to assert or domineer his authority over them as an apostle, but that he genuinely has uh, affection, holy affection and love for them. And so he's saying, believe me when I say I love you. I'm not just trying to control you, but I love you. And if you don't believe me by just simply saying it, letting my yes be yes and my no be no, well, I call God as my witness. Uh, and, and Paul, right there as a Jew, he's trusting that these Roman Christians would know that he would not falsely swear by the name of God, because that's a very serious thing. So, final you know, conclusion is it is permissible for New Testament Christians today to swear, or to undergo an oath, uh, to make a covenant, but the only thing that they can swear by would be God, the name of God. They should do so with fear and trepidation, uh, with reverence, uh, never falsely swearing, knowing that they're bound by their oath, and any oath-making or swearing should be few and far between for Christians and really reserved for the public sphere where we're engaging in business or in courts or in the military with unbelievers who, who don't give us the benefit of the doubt, but in our private dealings with our churches and with fellow Christians, and especially with our own families, our wife and children, um, we shouldn't have to swear. We should be able to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. And the last application that I'll give you as it pertains to family and parenting for Christian fathers and mothers is this. If your children, if you're a father or a mother and your children are regularly asking you, do you promise that? You promise? Right? They ask you, hey, dad, can we do this? Or can we do that? And you say yes. And that doesn't settle it. They immediately follow up. Your children say, you promise, dad? You promise? You promise? 
and I know this might hurt a little bit, but you need to hear it. What your children are essentially saying is, Dad, you're not a man of your word, and we don't trust you. We need you to swear. We need you to make an oath. We need you um, to promise us and bind yourself because your simple answer of yes doesn't always mean yes. You've taught us as your own children, you've taught us by your own speech and your own actions as our father or as our mother um, that your yes doesn't always mean yes. We can't take you at your word. Your no doesn't always mean no. We can't take you at your word. And so we need to, we need to pull out of you um, an oath, a promise, a swearing uh, for us to actually be able to trust you because you're wishy-washy when it comes to your word. So when Jesus condemns oath-taking, he's condemning making false oaths, crossing your fingers behind your back by swearing by other things other than the Lord so that you can let yourself out of the contract, let yourself out of the promise that you've made and not actually be faithful. However, um, it is permissible to make an oath in other contexts, public contexts, especially with unbelievers that don't necessarily trust us. Uh, that saying, I'm a Christian man, doesn't mean uh, uh, anything for them. Uh, but in our private dealings with fellow believers, and especially as fathers and mothers in our own families, in our marriage, and with our children, um, we should be known as being consistent, faithful, uh, integrous, that when we say yes, it means yes. And when we say no, it means no to where those who are close to us, fellow church members, friends, and certainly family and our own children, our own spouses, they're not sitting there trying to uh, force us to make a promise because they have been taught and trained by our own duplicity that our word uh, can't really be trusted. Woe to the, the father, woe to the mother um, whose children have to get them to promise because their yes doesn't always mean yes and their no doesn't always mean no. And that um, is me preaching to you and that is me preaching to myself. That's a convicting um, pastoral application with oath keeping as it applies to parenting and marriage that is relevant for all of us, myself included. Um, that convicts me, man, I, when I tell my kids, yes, it better mean yes. When I tell them no, it better be, mean no. I don't want my kids growing up, um, saying you promised dad, you promised dad, because every time they do that, um, that's a subtle indictment from my own children that would be saying, can't trust dad, got to get them to promise. Can't trust dad. Um, and that's not the kind of father or the kind of mother or the kind of husband or kind of wife that we want to be. So that's what I've got for you today. Uh, let me go ahead and give you um, uh, another announcement for our con a conference coming up. For those of you who are new to our channel, we'd love to have you come out. It's going to be March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 2024. It's about eight months away, give or take at this point. That's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Title of the conference, it's Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Subtitle of the conference is Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. Um, some people have been offended and bothered by the subtitle. We don't rule the world. And some people have said, well, you don't rule the world, Joel. Satan does. Well, I, I beg to differ. Uh, Satan was the prince of this era. He was the ruler of this world, ruler of this age. But here's the neat trick. Uh, Jesus came and he has bound the strong man and he has taken that dominion back. God is the ruler of the world. God gave stewardship and dominion to Adam in the garden to be a viceroy under God. God's still ultimate authority, but Adam and his wife as a helpmate to have dominion over 
the earth, the, all the fish of the sea and birds of the air and beasts of the field and all the plants and vegetation, they were called to steward the creation, uh, to, to have dominion, be fruitful, multiply, and exercise dominion over the created cosmos. That is to rule. The, the Christian mandate is not that we don't rule, but to rule righteously. Now, Adam forfeited that rulership to Satan by sinning. Adam was the federal head appointed by God over the, the earthly cosmos. He gave that rule over to Satan. So when Satan tempted Jesus in his incarnation, his earthly ministry in the wilderness, and he takes Jesus up to a high hillside and shows Jesus all the kingdoms of this world and says, I'll give them all to you. If you only bow down and worship me, Satan is actually not making a false offer. Satan is offering to Jesus kingdoms that he actually has authority over. Why? Because God, in the ultimate sense, has authority over everything, but God gave dominion and stewardship to Adam. Adam forfeited that stewardship and gave it to Satan when he sinned. Um, and then and then Satan, still having that dominion from Adam all the way to the time of Christ, is now tempting Christ and saying, hey, Jesus, I'll give you dominion. What Adam lost and handed to me, I'll give it back to you. All you have to do is commit idolatry and bow down and worship me. Now, Jesus, notice, he, he resists that temptation. He doesn't bow down. But Jesus is not saying, oh, I don't want the kingdoms of the world. I'm content with the 17th dimension and heaven, and I don't care for politics, and I don't care for human kingdoms, and I don't care for the earthly cosmos or any of these things. I, I'm a pietist, and this, this doesn't matter at all, and I'm just going to preach the gospel. That's not his answer. Instead, um, what Jesus says is, no, I'm not going to bow down to you. He resists the temptation to commit the sin of idolatry, but he never says, I don't care for the kingdoms of this world. Uh, essentially, implicitly, what I believe Jesus is saying is he's not saying, no, I don't want the kingdoms. He's saying, no, I don't want idolatry. I don't want to worship you. And furthermore, implicitly, Jesus is saying, I don't need you, Satan, to give me the kingdoms of the world. I'll take them. And he did. He took them by his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his uh, bodily resurrection from the grave on the third day, and his glorious um, ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And right before he ascends, he tells his disciples, all authority, not just in heaven, but also on earth, has now been given to me. Therefore, go and plunder the house. Jesus says, how do you plunder the house? First, you must go in and bind the strong man, right? Woe to you, O earth, for the devil has been cast down to you. The, the earth was Satan's house and he was the strong man. But Jesus in his earthly ministry through his life, death and resurrection and glorious ascension, he bound the strong man and he is now sending his disciples um, to go and plunder the earth through uh, the furthering of the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, that's how we are exercising rule and dominion. Uh, Adam had it. Adam forfeited it to Satan. Jesus, the second Adam, the final Adam, the better Adam, took it back from Satan and has given it back to us. So Blueprints for Christendom 2.0, the subtitle, which I don't apologize for, it's absolutely biblical and true. It's seven doctrines for ruling the world. We're going to talk about seven different doctrines for how we can righteously exercise dominion rule and stewardship as Christ ambassadors, as his representatives, the new Adam over the earthly cosmos that he's placed us in. We do this through the cultural mandate of being fruitful and multiplying. We also do this, of course, the tip of the spear is through the Great Commission, making disciples of nations and baptizing them into the name of the triune God 
and teaching them to obey all of Christ's commandments. It is a perfectly biblical doctrine. So we're going to be talking about seven different theologies, doctrines that all apply to this mandate to rule righteously, not just caring about a heaven, which we do care about, the life to come and those things which are eternal, but also caring about the earthly and temporal good of people here and now, and how to do that, how to live out our Christian faith in every realm of life, not just in church on Sunday and not just privately in our hearts or in our families, but all of Christ for all of life. So we've got Doug Wilson coming to the conference, Brian Sauvé, Eric Kahn, Joe Boot, myself. It's going to be a great time, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. We've got the early bird rate, but here's the big thing. Don't miss this. The last thing. The early bird rate runs out at the end of this month, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time, August 31st, it's done. August 31st, all the way to the end of the day, that's the last day to register at the early bird rate. Okay, so go to rightresponseconference.com, not Right Response Ministries, but rightresponseconference.com and make sure to register today so that you can get in at an affordable rate and come and enjoy this conference with all of us. We're excited to meet you there. Uh, Brian and even Ben Garrett is going to come from Refuge Church, and they're going to be doing a Haunted Cosmos-themed panel with me on all things unhinged. We'll probably talk about the Nephilim and Watchers and how that relates even is is relevant for for even Christians, New Testament Christians today. Uh, Me and Eric Kahn and Doug Wilson are going to talk about biblical patriarchy and how to practically live that out, not being domineering, but also also being confident and courageous and lovingly leading our wives and children as Christian men in our households. Uh, It's going to be a great time. I don't want you to miss it. So that's our episode for today. Um, One word from our sponsors. I don't want you to miss. We've got a couple new sponsors and they've got great deals going on right now. So check it out. Finally, a coffee company that doesn't hate you and your beliefs. Today's sponsor, Squirrely Joe's Coffee is a thoroughly Christian company that ships seriously good coffee straight to your front door. Owned and operated by Joe Morris and his family out of Olney, Illinois. Joe also serves as a pastor of a small reformed church. They believe that Christians should be building a thoroughly Christian economy by doing business with other like-minded Christians. They also donate a portion of their proceeds to Operation Underground Railroad to help end child trafficking. Just go to squirrelyjoes.com and use promo code RRM for 20% off your purchase. Squirrely Joe's Coffee. Share coffee. Serve humbly. Live faithfully. Our sponsors, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion Mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risk. To join this growing community that is already building wealth unto future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact private family banking partner Chuck DeLotteronte at his email chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. That's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Set up an appointment and receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, 
Protect your money now. How to build multi-generational wealth outside of Wall Street and avoid the coming banking meltdown. Go to the links in the show notes below. Are you looking for a Christian-owned and operated cattle company that delivers high-quality beef to your doorstep? If so, you'll love Mercy Meadows Ranch. Our friends at Mercy Meadows share our values and vision, making the Dominion mandate a reality. They raise top-quality beef without any vaccines, hormones, or antibiotics. To celebrate their fall bulk beef launch, they're giving away a free 10-pound box of ground beef to one of our listeners. You could be the winner of this amazing grass-fed, grain-finished beef. Are you looking for beef to fill the freezer? Then check out their delicious steaks, roasts, fajitas, and ground beef shipped free directly to your door. Don't miss this chance to enter this incredible giveaway. Just click the link in the description below to enter the giveaway. Mercy Meadows Ranch is the best choice for Christian families who want to eat healthy and support Christians serving Christians. 